Good evening, friends. Uh, it's good to be together, and uh, particularly if you're visiting this evening, uh, it's good to have you amongst us. Uh, my name is John Thorpe. I'm the minister here at Shell Harbour City Anglican. Uh, we're going to spend some time having a look at this passage together. Uh, so let me pray uh, that God might speak to us. Uh, dear Lord, as we come together today uh, to celebrate the events of Easter, I pray that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. Amen. No one likes to admit that we have doubts. Uh, we don't like to admit that we have any doubts about getting married. Uh, certainly, that was none of us here, but I've heard it does happen for others. <laughs> uh, we don't like to admit that we have doubts about our own abilities. Uh, and certainly, as Christians, we don't like to admit that we have doubts about God. In fact, on a day like today, it feels almost irreverent uh, to talk about having doubts. Uh, for some, it's doubting that God is there at all. Uh, it's not necessarily an issue of evidence. Uh, sometimes it's more about confidence. Uh, so our atheistic culture is so confident that there is no God, and often so patronising towards anyone who believes in God, uh, that we start to doubt our own conviction. Uh, perhaps it comes down to an issue of science. If matter and the laws of nature and time can exist independent of God, then maybe we really are the result of simply deaf, dumb and blind luck. Perhaps it's doubting that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, we don't doubt that Jesus was a person of influence, but we feel that the Son of God is just a bridge too far. Uh, or perhaps it comes down to the resurrection. Did Jesus really physically rise from the dead. And so on Friday we came together to remember what Christ did for us on the cross. That Christ died once for all. The good, the perfect, for the bad, for us. Uh, so that our relationship with God might be restored. Uh, it was about sin, but it was also about love and mercy and justice. It was about God finishing what he has started. So if that was Friday, then Sunday, today, three days later, it's all about victory, as we celebrate the victory of the resurrection. Because it's in the resurrection that our hopes in Christ are confirmed. That Jesus really is the Son of God, that he really did pay the price for our sin. But if you're someone who struggles with the resurrection and you struggle to believe that it really is true, then take some comfort in knowing that you are in good company. So Thomas was one of the closest disciples with Jesus, one of the inner 12. And yet he struggled to believe that the resurrection could actually be true. So let's have a look at this first day. Uh, if we go back to the start of the chapter and work our way forward, uh, it began with the women going to the tomb uh, first thing in the morning. Uh, so John's account focuses just on Mary Magdalene, but we know from other accounts that there were a number of women with Mary. And the women were going to prepare the body for burial. 
Uh, they would have done it on Friday, uh, but uh, it was the Sabbath coming, and by the time Jesus had died and was taken down from the cross, it was too late. And so now the Sabbath has passed, and so they're going back to the tomb. And when they arrive, uh, they discover that the body is gone, and Mary presumes that someone has taken it. And so she goes running back to the disciples to tell them what's happened. And then the disciples coming running back to the tomb uh, to see, you know, is this really true? Because even they can't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. You know, he talked about rising again from the dead when he was alive, but they clearly didn't think he meant literally or physically. But John is the first to get it. John likes to point out a few things in this passage. He does run faster than Peter. Uh, he's not posting or anything, just saying. Uh, and he is the first to believe. So verse 8, he saw and believed. And he's just telling you the facts, right? Unlike the others, who still do not understand from the Scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. You know, on Friday we talked about how the crucifixion looked like a failure. Now, if you were standing there watching Jesus die on the cross, then everything you had hoped for has come to nothing. And again, if you're, if you're there that Sunday morning, we're just talking failure on failure. But for those who had eyes to see, they could actually see how God had already spoken about these events. That these events were already woven into the words of the Old Testament. Now, when John talks about you know, Scripture, he could have been talking about how all of the Old Testament points us to Jesus. Uh, or perhaps he's thinking of just a particular verse. Uh, perhaps from Psalm 16 would be a good example. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. But whatever the details, John wants us to be clear that these events are all happening according to God's will. And we know as we read on that Jesus then appears to Mary uh, again. Uh, we know that later in the day, uh, from the account of Luke, that uh, Jesus will spend some time walking with two disciples on their way to Emmaus. Uh, we know he appeared to Simon. And then once we get to the evening, we know he appears to that inner circle of disciples. And so we pick up the account again at verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, can you imagine how the disciples have felt over the last couple of days? You know, on Friday, it would have been the grief of watching their teacher and mentor and Lord die on a cross. Uh, but also amongst that, a sense of hopelessness. They, they have given up everything to follow this bloke. They had genuinely believed he was the promised Messiah, and now he's dying on a cross. And then, three days later... They're hiding upstairs in a room for fear that they're going to be the next ones. And Jesus stands amongst them. And then Jesus says, peace be with you. 
Yeah, it's just a, a common standard issue, common, you know, greeting, Jewish greeting. It's like me, you know, meeting you and saying, hi, how are you? But in this particular moment in time, uh, those words are more than just social etiquette. For the disciples, there is peace in knowing that their trust in Jesus was well placed. That Jesus really was the Messiah who they had followed. He really was the Son of God, and their faith had not failed them. And there is peace in knowing that his death and resurrection have overcome the consequences of death, so that they can now have peace with God. Yeah, it doesn't change their circumstances, does it? They're still hiding upstairs in a room. They still might end up being killed for being followers of Jesus. But even that loses some of its power when you are clear about where you stand. And so, they overjoy. Yeah, that's a big shift, isn't it? You know, from going from a position of complete hopelessness to now something that almost cannot be expressed. But it's not just sitting there peacefully, you know, waiting for the bus to now take them to glory. So verse 21, again Jesus says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So Jesus has saved them through his death and resurrection and is now preempting what's going to happen next. So the disciples have been with Jesus for three years. Uh, they've listened to what he had to say. They've listened to his teaching. And now Jesus is about to send them out in the world to proclaim the same message. And he's going to do it by empowering them with his Holy Spirit. And so Jesus gives them the Spirit as his representative. Uh, so they know what sin looks like. They know what salvation looks like. And Jesus gives them the authority to declare forgiveness. But ultimately, it's not the disciples who do the forgiving. So the words, their sins are forgiven, is written in the passive tense, which simply means that someone else is doing the forgiving. So they declare forgiveness, but God is the one who forgives. And so as an example, John, who, who wrote this book, writes in one of his letters, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So John is able to declare who is and isn't forgiven because of what he has been taught by Jesus and because of what God has inspired in him as he writes the Word of God. Uh, we haven't been given quite the same authority, uh, but we can still speak words of assurance. So if someone says, you know, I, I've repented, uh, I followed Jesus as my Lord and Saviour, then we can say to them with confidence, you are forgiven. Uh, not because I've got authority to forgive you, but because God has forgiven you, and I know it, because the Bible has told me so. And so now we come to Thomas. So if John was the first to reach the tomb, and the first to believe, 
then Thomas is the last. Because he missed everything that happened that first evening. You know, if you've ever been worried about missing a party or something like that, well, that fear is well-founded. Because if you miss one party, it could be the one time that something awesome happens. So never miss anything again. That's the moral. That's not. But verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You know, Thomas really is the poster child for scepticism. You know, despite everything that he has seen over the last three years, everything he's heard as he has travelled with Jesus, it is inconceivable for him to imagine that Jesus really did rise physically from the dead. You know, they say extraordinary events require extraordinary proof. And for Thomas, it's not enough to simply be told by people he trusted. He needs to see it for himself. He needs to see the hands. He needs to see Jesus' side. He needs to see how Jesus has suffered and the marks of his suffering that have resulted from the crucifixion. And so a week later, the disciples are together again in the house and Jesus appears amongst them. And he says, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And even for Thomas, that was enough. And Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. Now they're words of incredible clarity. First it's personal, my Lord and my God. Secondly, Lordship speaks to allegiance. This is who I follow. My Lord tells me where to go, and I go. My Lord tells me what to do, and I do it. And that's a difficult message to hear, particularly in our current sort of cultural climate, you know, where we're so individualistic and so anti-establishment, we want to make it all about me. But that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It means recognising his authority and his lordship. And then finally, acknowledging Jesus as God speaks to his authority. You know, Jesus isn't just a profound teacher. Uh, he isn't just another prophet. He is literally the Son of God. So there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, each one is a unique person. Each one has a unique role. Each complements the other. And at the same time, they are so unified that they can only be described as one. And so when we talk about Jesus, we're not simply talking about the Jesus who died on the cross. We're talking about Jesus who was there from the beginning. So again, in the words of John, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's the same Jesus who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, And it's the same Jesus who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so when Thomas sees the risen Jesus, he gets it. Not just that Jesus has risen, 
but who he is, my Lord and my God. I suspect most of us would feel that our faith would be a lot stronger if we had that type of experience. Now, if we had been there, if we had been able to put you know, my hands, uh, to touch his hands, to put my hands in his side, then my faith would be so much stronger. And Jesus understands our sceptical hearts. So in verse 29, Jesus told them, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. Uh, We are the people who have not seen. And Jesus says to us, we are blessed. And I, I think what he means is there's something particularly pure and something particularly deep about trusting someone without constantly needing proof and justification. You know, it's a bit like a, a child who goes running off a table and then just leaps into their parents' arms. You know, there's not a moment's hesitation. They have complete faith that that parent is there and that that parent will hold them. You know, if you think about a, a marriage, I would much prefer to be in a marriage where uh, I simply say, I have faith that my wife loves me, than to be in a marriage where I have faith that my wife loves me because she has to constantly prove it to me and show me each day. Wouldn't you much prefer the first rather than the second? Just that, that trust. Uh, I remember one, once upon a time I used to uh, serve in a church in Greenacre and uh, there was a lady uh, from a Muslim background uh, giving uh, her story about how she had become a Christian. And she was talking about how in the lead up to her becoming a Christian, uh, that she had these dreams and visions and Jesus had spoken to her uh, you know, through these, these events. And someone asked her uh, through, through the interview, do you still have those dreams and visions? And she was quite a little old lady. And she gives this little wiry smile. She goes, no, I don't really need that anymore. And that's the type of faith that Jesus is talking about here. Uh, But it's not a blind faith. Uh, People often define faith as belief in the absence of facts. So in the context of God, they'd say, well, you can't see God. Even our more mysterious experiences of life can be explained in terms of natural phenomena or human psychological development. And therefore, faith in God is naive at best and stupid at worst. Uh, There is certainly such a thing as blind faith. Uh, There is such a thing as misplaced faith. But it's just as valid to talk about faith in terms of experience and precedent. Because actually, we make faith decisions every single day. Uh, When you get in your car and you start it, you just have faith that it will start. When you buy food from the shops, you have faith that it is fit for human consumption. Uh, And that faith is based on your previous experience. uh, And your experience of different people and different relationships. Uh, Thomas had faith because of what he saw. And even though we're not there, even though we can't share in that first night... Our faith is still grounded in the same events of history. And John wants us to be clear that our faith is well founded. So verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, 
and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You know, today, uh, people become Christians for all sorts of reasons. Uh, For some, they read the Bible and it resonates with their experience of reality. They just know that it's true and they see that it works. Uh, For others, they see the order of creation and recognise that there must be some creator behind it. And so they start searching for answers. For others, they look at the historicity of Jesus and the events like today of the resurrection. But behind all of those convictions, uh, God is at work, opening our eyes to see his sovereignty uh, and to see just how much we are loved and to see that we can be forgiven and to see that death has been defeated. And because of the resurrection, we can be confident that it isn't just wishful thinking, that this is real, that our hope is well-founded, and we can be confident of where we stand before God now and where we stand before God eternally because of who He is. And that's a wonderful hope to have. Amen.